0: my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't,
1: you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performance Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. If you like today's conversation, please go over to iTunes and write us a review. It really does help us expand our reach and helps new listeners find the show. Also, if you... Enjoy today's conversation or any of our past episodes, share them. Share them on social. Share them with a friend via text or email. Pick your favorite episode and just share it with a friend that you think would enjoy the conversation. That's how we've grown this thing, and we're going to continue to try to get this into as many ears as possible. So thanks to all of you for your continued support. Now to today's guest. Chad Ford is somebody who I met through an organization called Peace Players. If you've listened to other conversations on the podcast, you've probably heard me say that a lot. Peace Players has been a gift in my life. And if you're interested in learning more about the work that they do, I encourage you to Google them and check out that uh, their work. They're an amazing nonprofit that is always looking for people to support their cause of trying to create peace in areas of conflict. And Chad has really been living five lives simultaneously for nearly 20 years. And we talk about the paradoxical nature of his work and and even the intersection of some of his work. So he's been an international conflict mediator, a college professor, a senior consultant and facilitator for the Arbinger Institute, an executive board member of peace players as i mentioned about their organization earlier he's probably best known as a writer analyst and entrepreneur covering the nba and nba draft for espn he's going to get into how that came to be and the story is is just mind-boggling and fascinating so uh, you'll you'll find that to be really interesting and as i said most people know him for his work at espn being Being a basketball analyst has really just been a side gig for most of the last two decades for Chad. He's really, really passionate about peace building, and you can hear it in his voice, the tone of this conversation. It's what he feels he was meant to do on this earth, and he has a book coming out that talks about dangerous love, is the name of the book, that talks about uh, peace building and and how we can use love in dangerous situations and how love often is what wins out. So he completed a master's degree in conflict analysis and resolution from George Mason University. And at the same time, he got his JD from Georgetown University's law school in 2000. And Chad's story will take all kinds of twists and turns. And he's also going to be really vulnerable in this conversation and talking about his upbringing and some of the challenges and adversity that he saw both at home and in the school uh, and in his community living in Kansas City. So I know you're going to love this conversation. It's deep. It's vulnerable. It's real. And Chad is filled with wisdom and knowledge. So you're going to glean a lot from this conversation. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Chad Ford. Chad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We first met a few years ago on a trip to Israel with Peace Players, which is an organization that's close to both of our hearts and you've been involved with them for a number of years. And I remember when uh, one of the co-founders, Brendan Tui, told me that you're going to be on this trip to Israel. I got very excited. And the reason I was so excited is because for years, I was obsessed with the NBA draft. And um, I had a website that was called Brian's Big Board. And at some point when I got that website up and running, Um, I think I sent it to somebody at ESPN and they said, oh, he took big board from Chad Ford Um, or or somebody had started the, the term big board. And so I enjoyed reading your content for years on the NBA draft and learning from you and loved how much effort and research you did when it came to the NBA draft. And so when we got to Israel, I was so excited to chat with you about the NBA and the NBA draft. And certainly we did But over the years, getting to go back to Israel more and more with you, I've learned that you have so much more complexity to your story and your journey and and your interests and your passions um, that I've just enjoyed learning from you. And especially as it relates to peace and how do you build peace and um, how do you negotiate peace? Um, So today, I think Hopefully, we'll be able to cover a lot of different aspects of your journey. Um, but what I'd love to actually start is learning a little bit more about how you became you. And just give me an idea of what life was like for you as a kid and what helped shape uh, who you are today.
0: Yeah, well, first, I want to say I'm so grateful to be on the pod with you, Brian. And I feel like you know we have, that joint, we have those joint passions, which are unique in the world, right? Basketball on one end and conflict resolution and doing good in the world on the other and it's always great in life when you can combine two two passions together and then you find this tribe of people <laughs> and and peace players has really helped me find this tribe of people that include everybody from nba owners to execs to coaches to just everyday everyday people who love the game but see the potential for the game to do so much more in the world. And so it's great great to be on your podcast and uh, an awesome opportunity for me to talk about more than just who's going where in the draft. I, I, I love doing that and I have a lot of fun with it, but for me, it's, there's so much more uh, to it. And I really appreciate giving this chance to have this, this sort of conversation with you. I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri and uh, grew up in a, in a fairly difficult circumstance. My, my father was a Vietnam veteran who got very, very sick after, after the war in Vietnam and eventually was diagnosed with cerebellar, uh, spinocerebellar degeneration, which is the, the disintegrating of your cerebellum in the back of your brain. And it's a very, very rare disease and one that there is no treatment for or no particular cure and so your the functions that the cerebellum operate in your brain just slowly start to disintegrate it's it's a death sentence but it's a long and unfortunately a painful death sentence And, and when my father was diagnosed with it when i was when i was young his reaction at the time was hard but you know now i understand it more was a little bit of a freak out and he left left our family, uh, I think, I don't know, I don't know why, searching, searching for something. So I grew up with a single mom, a mom that just had a high school education and had to work multiple jobs that just kind of put us through uh, life. And a lot of my outlet was sports. I I loved sports. I actually, you know, baseball and basketball, I had two joint joint, uh, passions. I wasn't particularly great at playing either sport. And so uh, while I did play those sports, it was much more about, you know, when I was a kid with baseball cards, like memorizing the stat- statistics on the back of every card. And you know, this is before the internet, because I'm old, uh, <laughs> right? But you know, in basketball, I would go out on the, uh, on the court and pretend I was all these different players and became really interested, interested really early on in how teams were put together, how they were run, you know, that, that was my, my passion. I didn't study any of that in high school or, or college. I, I fell in love with conflict resolution. And in part because I grew up in a very divided community in Kansas City, Missouri. You know, Kansas City was one of the last cities in the United States that was still fighting the desegregation of schools and a very, very segregated uh, city and community and seeing the effects of that growing up uh, obviously being from a lower socioeconomic uh, st- you know status we got to see the effects both of of poverty but also of racial discrimination in 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 our community and and country it had deep impact on me and and I w- I felt it was both unfair and wanted to do something about it and also had no clue about what to do about it right so it was all protest and <laughs> you know uh, all these little protests that I would start in high school or different things like that and it wasn't really until um, I I decided I was going to become a history major and I was just gravitating towards historical events where there was massive social change for good in the world. I loved reading about Gandhi and Martin Luther King. I grew up during the fall of apartheid in South Africa and what Nelson Mandela was doing in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission And when I finally got introduced to conflict resolution or peace building, it just, it struck a chord with me that I just deeply, deeply fell in love with. And it didn't actually happen, interestingly, until I was in my first year of law school. So I actually went to law school at Georgetown. I knew I wanted to do something to help the world. I was thinking maybe about human rights law or sort of international law or something like that. And so after undergrad, I went, I went to Georgetown. And and I should add also, just because this is a big part of my journey in my life now, I went to undergraduate school in Hawaii. And I, to be f- completely transparent, I wanted to become a surfer. That's, that's, what I wa- that's what I wanted to do. That's why I was at Hawaii. You know, no, <laughs> nothing deeper than that. But I hey, fell hey, in Chad, love. Hey, yeah. Chad,
1: I went to Syracuse because they had a big dome in the middle of the campus. So okay. <laughs> uh, we, all have our, we all have our reasons. I just want to pause you real quick. So what age were you and dad left?
0: I don't know, six, seven years old.
1: Do you have a memory of him like being there one day and then and that not? Like what, what, yeah. what transpired with that?
0: Yeah, I remember the day my dad left. He had this uh, watch that I really loved. I don't, I don't know why. And one night that there was an argument with him and my mom. I was in my room. I could hear it through the door. And he opened the door and he handed me his watch. And he said goodbye. And I didn't see him again. Uh, for several years. And, um, and when he came back, the disease, he, he came back in part because the disease had taken his ability to really drive safely and to just take care of himself and live on his own. So he moved back in with my grandmother, his mother. And, and so he became part of my life again, but a very different, it was very different when he came back because of the progression of the illness and, um, and obviously, at that point, my family breaking apart. With that said, I loved I loved my dad, and uh, he was a remarkable, remarkable human being because he suffered in a way that very few people will ever, ever have to physically suffer. While his mind was 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 quite sharp and strong, he was incredibly articulate, intelligent human being. But one of the things it affects is your speech patterns, and so. It would sound when my father spoke like he was drunk. His speech would be slurred because he he lost the ability to have fine motor control over his muscles, and and so people would see him in a wheelchair or a walker and then hear his speech and it would seem like you know there was something maybe also mentally sort of wrong with my dad, which was so frustrating to him because there wasn't like he was sharp, and uh, you know the way people saw him and treated him was really 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 challenging. But my dad's one of my heroes. He. He persevered in a way that uh, that I don't know that I could do, and uh, I write about him. It's actually the last chapter of my book, uh, and Dangerous Love is about him and the example that 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 he taught me about how to work through really really challenging conflict.
1: Did you always have that perspective, or did you have bitterness toward him as a kid? I mean, six seven years old. You have this memory of him giving you a watch, and then dad being gone. Yeah. Um, Like, when did you start to have that feeling, or thought, or perspective on your dad?
0: You know what? Bitterness has never been my thing, Mm -hmm. and I don't know why. You know, I I just think maybe some of us are born without that (laughs) that that gene or emotion. I remember when my dad wrote me a letter and and i hadn't heard from him for some time and wrote and and said he was coming back i my brothers and sisters had different reactions to it but my reaction was 100% welcome home you know i'm just so glad that that you're back and i think part of it was it was hard when you're around my dad every day to not have empathy for the man and the way that he was suffering and so it's really hard to hold a grudge when people are going through stuff in life that is unfathomable uh, to me. who was healthy, could run, could, could talk. People could understand me, you know, all those different things. It's, it's really, really hard to hold a grudge against someone when their life conditions are the way that they were. And so for me, it was never, never about that. Now I got in a major conflict with him later in my life as, as his disease progressed, they got, it got so painful. His legs would, just going to Charlie horses constantly again, sort of involuntary control of his muscles, and you know, super super painful. It seemed to be affected by the weather for whatever reason. And you know, if we'd have storm, and we were mid- Midwest in Kansas City, you'd have these storms, and one would come and be so so painful for him. And when I was older, right when I had graduated from college and had moved back to Kansas City for about eighteen months, uh, there was a a moment. I write about this in a book where he tried to take his life, um, took um, a, a bottle of Tylenol and called me in the middle of the night and told me, this is what I've done. I can't, I can't take the pain anymore. I don't want to die alone. And I want you to come over and be with me. And and I freaked out and called 911. And by the time I made it to his house, they had chopped his door down, the fire department. And, you know, we're, we're forcing him to throw up the, you know, the pills and it led to a multi-year conflict with my father who felt that I'd really betrayed him. And, and I had no right. I, it was his life to take or to not take. And, um, and so it wasn't always easy, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I can tell you that. And that decision that I made altered his life and my life pretty dramatically uh, for several years. But again, eventually we were able to reconcile as well.
1: How many siblings did you have?
0: I have a brother, a sister, and then I have a half-sister. My mother eventually remarried.
1: And it's interesting because you talked about um, maybe not having a bitterness uh, inside of you. How much do you think is nature, nurture? How do you think about nature and nurture as you think about yourself and how you've become who you are? I'm just curious how you make sense of all that.
0: I don't know. I, I don't understand myself most days, right? And... All I know is that I, I've worked with because of doing conflict resolution, i've worked with so many people that are feeling those emotions. I'm the last one to ever judge someone who's feeling those. I also have have felt a lot of emotions, depression, not feeling like I'm enough, um, grief, uh, uh, you know I have my own own uh, burdens to bear, if you will, and I know how challenging those are for me. I'm grateful that anger and <laughs> resentment haven't been haven't been those for me. And so I don't know how much of it is, you know, just something that maybe, you know, chemically, we're more prone to feeling particular sort of emotions. I also know that I had an amazing mother who never really experienced, who never really showed that uh, to me, despite very, very difficult and challenging circumstances. And to a certain extent, it also wasn't my dad's thing. I wouldn't say anger was his thing. Regret, uh, disappointment, deep, deep depression over what was happening. those were all really powerful emotions. so I just think people experience life a little differently, and it 's okay, however you 're experiencing it, but it 's you know what you do with all of those emotions that 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 ultimately that ultimately matter
1: and why do you think you went towards conflict in college? You talk about protesting in high school. Uh, many others would say oh, i've seen too much of this in my own home like i'm just going to run away from conflict why do you think you, you were interested in it and wanted to go deeper and, and dive deeper into it
0: i also may have a fairness gene in me <laughs> that doesn't like when things are unfair i don't like it for me personally mm-hmm. when i when i feel things like aren't aren't f- fair towards me and I don't like it in other I don't like to see other people have to wrestle with that as well and I think part of it was you know I grew up in a community that that had a pretty fairly even mix between white caucasians and african americans in the community that that I grew up with and when you're young you know things like race, socioeconomic status. A lot of that stuff doesn't really matter so much, right? You're just friends with who you're friends with, and you know none of that matters. You just like nice people. And when you get to high school, and that stuff starts to matter, and identity starts to matter more, and you become more aware of differences and and things. I I I think I experienced a lot of a lot of grief over friendships that were lost. the sort of you know, clicks that start to happen, and maybe some childhood friends that I didn't fit in that group anymore, and maybe they didn't fit in mine. But I also saw firsthand, because those relationships were still a big part of my life, how differently my African American friends were treated, both in school and outside of school, than me. It wasn't about behavior or attitude, it was simply based off the color of their skin. So if I'm in a car with African-American friends and we're pulled over uh, and I'm driving, there's one reaction. When when Annette, one of my African-American friends were driving, there was a different reaction. When we get in trouble at school for various reasons of getting in trouble, when I got in trouble, there was one reaction. Oh, Chad, he's rebellious, da 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 when My African-American friends would get in trouble uh, the way that they were seen and treated was really different. It, it, it bothered me, and it, it, it bothered me deeply. Of course, not as much as it bothered them, because they were the recipients of it. But it bothered me as well.
1: It's it's just interesting. So, justice is a a value for you that, it, as you go to law school, I'm sure it comes up. But as you're talking, I I was raised in a different environment than you, um, in a different household than you. But for me. Um, there was a moment in high school I was introduced to a nonprofit called hoop dreams and hoop dreams was named after the basketball documentary that many people are familiar with. But basically hoop dreams was called hoop dreams because there was a basketball tournament that this nonprofit would do every year a three on three basketball tournament. That's how they raised their money, but they would get uh, scholarships for inner city kids to go to college. And they were in Anacostia, um, you know, in a, in a, a predominantly African-American area outside Washington, DC. And my parents were involved with that nonprofit and they hosted something at their house. And I remember them telling me, Brian, these kids are going to come over that are your age. I was a sophomore junior in high school and try to make them feel welcome. You know, a lot of them haven't been to an area like where we live. And I was like, well, I, what am i going to do I, I i don't know how to handle this either by the end of the night i realized like those kids were the same as me um, the difference being that i was focused on where i would go to school and they were really thinking about if they could go to school and by school i mean college and so from there i i created a club at school and we did our own basketball tournament and it actually set me on my path where i ended up minoring in african american studies majoring in sociology and really interested in sort of justice and and inequality. And for me, at least like the racial uh, disparity was just so, for lack of a better word, clean and that I could actually just see it. And I think that was a mind boggling thing for me at the age of 18 to to witness and 16 and, and then 20. Um, so just interesting to hear your story and my story and where there might be similarities and where there are differences. I'm curious for you, though, going from Hawaii to Georgetown, because uh, those are very different experiences. And I live a couple of miles from Georgetown's campus. I've worked with athletes at Georgetown. Um, I would imagine the desire to go to Hawaii is very different than the desire to study law at Georgetown. What was the experience coming you know, and and going however thousands of miles there are between Hawaii and Georgetown, but also culturally and just the differences in entering Georgetown Law School and what that experience is like for you.
0: Yeah, I loved Hawaii. It was an amazing, powerful experience to me. And I I went to a small campus. I went to BYU-Hawaii, which is on the North Shore of Hawaii. And one of the things that's unique about the institution, I think there's two, One is that of the 3,000 or so students that are there, they come from about 100 countries. And so you have this, and it's very, very mixed. So it's a a virtual United Nations of a university. and, And so I had this deep exposure to all of these cultures. They were my schoolmates, they were my professors. You're living and working with all these people around the world. You're just exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking and living and seeing the world together. That was super intriguing to me. At the same time, you also saw the differences that were there, but also at that age, everybody was here trying to understand how to work through those differences. The, the school was founded by a man, David O. McKay, who had the vision for this school after World War One that these people would come together and learn how to understand each other's culture and that something like World War One would never happen again. And so there was a, a peace-building mission here as well, that I think drove a lot of the people that were coming, coming to the school. And so my junior year, I was a history major, but I was really interested in the host culture, the Hawaiian culture that was there and what had happened to the Hawaiian culture. I was taking some Hawaiian history classes, ended up diving deeply into that. And one of my mentors ended up being this man, uh, Bill Kalani Wallace, uh, a native Hawaiian rights activist, lawyer, history professor. And it was in a moment where a number of Native Hawaiians were asking questions of the U.S. government around sovereignty, and thinking about what their rights were uh, from a from a country uh, from a their country, which had been illegally overthrown uh, by the U.S. government in the late eighteen hundreds, and being involved in all of that and seeing what a lawyer did and, and, and human rights and, and, and all of that stuff, he was the one who really launched me and said, Hey, I think what you need to do is go to law school and need to figure it out. The problem was when I got to Georgetown one, you know, I, I was a, a, you know, a, a medium sized fish in a very small pond to being at Georgetown where I remember the first day, one of the professors asked like, how many of you were like valedictorians in your college class? And it was like something ridiculous, like 75% of the class is like raising their, raising their hand. And I'm like, it's a really different group and i didn't know much about the law to be honest with you i again i i was uh, my, my family didn't have a track record of relieving really young people graduate graduating from college let alone going on to something like law school we didn't have any lawyers in the family or anything like that and I, i'll be honest i hated it i hated my first year there there's nothing against georgetown it just I was really interested in thinking about how do you get people living together and working together? And our legal system in the United States isn't really set up that way. That's that's not what it's there to do. It's there to enforce rights, not teach us how to not violate each other's rights, If that, if, if that makes sense, right? And and it was really interesting, I was in an experimental first year at Georgetown Law School, that had some really cool professors uh, like um, Carrie Minkle Meadow, who was really part of the pioneer in alternative dispute resolution and, and what have you. And it was really interesting to hear my law professors really critiquing the law and critiquing what the law can and can't do while they were law professors there. And 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 it was in my second semester that a man named Dennis Ross, who was the chief negotiator for Middle East peace during the Clinton administration and has, has stayed on in certain capacities throughout his entire career, was speaking, uh, I went to see him speak, and he was talking about some of the challenges that were happening in the Middle East peace process. And I'll never forget that Ross talked about this track one and track two diplomacy. There's the stuff on the that that is, that is happening between diplomats and governments and then there's the stuff that happens on the ground with everyday people and communities, and that the government is so hyper focused on the stuff that's happening between leaders that they often lose what is going on on the ground and so what happens is you can go to Camp David and you can get you know you can get uh, um, leaders to agree on a peace process or a way forward, but then selling that back to their people is almost sometimes impossible, and we we know the history of this in the Middle East, that so much of the problem wasn't that the leaders could come up with an agreement, it was the getting the buy-in of the people on the ground. And that he looked out at the audience at one point and said, you know, look, it's gonna be on your generation to figure out how to bridge that gap, how to bridge the gap between, uh, on one hand, these important governmental efforts that will always be the case around, around peacemaking, and the work that needs to happen in communities to prepare people for peace, and that was the moment in my life where a light bulb went on in my head, and I thought, you know what, this is actually why I'm here, and it's it's amazing to have those moments. Like, wait, I'm here. I was here to hear this speech, and I waited in line afterwards to talk to him. And when I finally got to talk with him, I said, okay, that's really awesome. How do I do that? Where do I go? What, what classes should I take? You know, I just flooding with questions. His answer is like, I don't know. That's why I'm saying, like, you know this is on your generation figure to it sort of figure it, figure it <laughs> out, but he did, he did point me to George Mason university. They had a place that's uh, called the Institute for conflict analysis and resolution. Now the school for conflict analysis and resolution just recently renamed after Jimmy Carter uh, at, who is sponsoring the center now and a man named Wallace Warfield who was a, an African-American mediator who worked for the federal mediation and, Con- and conciliation service uh, in the United States. And he said, you know, I think, that this is a guy who's done a lot of community organizing, working on the ground in in various aspects. You should go talk to him. And so I skipped school that day, drove down or didn't drive down in a car at the time, took the train down to George Mason, waited for him, waited for him in his office. Uh, He comes in, blows by me. I'm like trying to get into his office. He's really busy. He's trying to blow me off. And I tell him, you know, look, this is what I wanna do. And I don't know who else to talk to. Like, if you don't really want to talk to me, can you point me in the right direction? And I think he, I, you know, I'm just a young, you know, college graduate student at the time. White kid, you know, sitting there, you know, Again, what does he want? So he, he sits me down and he asks me, what do you know about Martin Luther King? And I'm like, okay, I got this. I know a lot of history major. I know a lot about Martin Luther King. And after I get done telling him all stuff he already knows, he tells me, no, that's not what I'm asking. Like, what do you know about what he did? I'm not talking about his speech, but like how he did what he did, how he created the civil rights movement, the way, way that he did, what do you know about that? And my answer was, hey, I don't really know very much at all uh, about that. And he slid a copy of a book by King uh, called Strength of Love across his desk. And he said, read this, and if you're still interested, and this really you know, put, set your heart on fire, come back and talk to me. And what he didn't expect was that I was gonna walk out his door, sit under a tree, read the entire book cover to cover that, that day and knock on his door in the late afternoon and say, I'm in. And, and that, that was really the life changing moment for me. Then I ended up doing a dual degree with George Mason and Georgetown and conflict resolution. I, I still stayed in law because I, I found that there was some real valuable things to learn there as well. And that, that's really what got me set on my course.
1: You said something earlier about like, all right, this is what I'm meant to be doing, and look, it's not lost on me. BYU, Mormon. Like, what percentage of the the kids at in BYU Hawaii are are Mormon?
0: Oh, the, the vast, vast majority. Yeah.
1: So, uh, spiritual framework that you were brought up with, and then um, spiritual framework. If it's the same as you have today, I'd just be curious to get. And look. Spirituality, religion, complex—it's—it's it, it's layered, but yeah. it's kind of the beauty of a podcast. We can we can play mm-hmm. in that in that sandbox. So, um, just give us some some idea as far as how you see the world from a religious or spirituality framework. Yeah.
0: Unlike a lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I don't always wear my religion on my sleeve. But it's a major part of how I see the world and, and perhaps I see it uniquely in some ways. Um, I wasn't raised uh, in, in the church my entire life uh, and then it sort of waxed and waned in my family a bit. And it was really a personal decision for me around the age of 15 to, to really engage, which I think was really important at the time. I really didn't have much in the way of family support on that, on that end. And, um, and what, what fascinated me about, about that faith was this cosmology around who we were before this world, who we are in this world and where we're going and, and questions that I think everybody asks all the time around those things. Like, why are we here? And, you know, what's the purpose of that? that were really intriguing to me. And and one of the most central of things was that before this life, we had a loving heavenly father who had spirit children and that we're all related. In fact, if you've ever been around Mormons, you know that they all refer to each other as brother and sister. And it it can sound really cheesy, but I don't actually think it is. I, I actually think at a deep level, it's a recognition that whatever divides us in this life spiritually we all are offspring uh, of, of God and that there's some important realization around that, that would make this world a better, a better place. And that's what really sort of resonated with me and has always been a driving motivator for me in, in my faith is that I, I believe and this, I deeply believe that all of us in humanity are brothers and sisters that, uh, we are all connected, even though our religions might be different, our race might be different, the countries that we're from, all of those different things, that at a spiritual level, we are connected that way. And rediscovering that connection, to me, is a big part about what, what life is like in this, in this life. Like we're, we're, we're presented with all of these obstacles of how we would miss it or how we wouldn't understand it or even tell ourselves story about actually how fundamentally different we actually are. But for me, our journey, my journey at least, has been about rediscovering that. And and then conflict resolution just comes so naturally for me out of that, right? Then then our purpose in life is to find ways to bridge those divides and to see each other as people, which is a common term that we use a lot in peace players, one of the peace players' values, and and something that I, I learned from the Arbinger Institute the, you know, that that is language for me of peacebuilding is how do we quit seeing each other as objects or somehow fundamentally different from each other and start to see the humanity. And it's okay that we're different, but at a fundamental level, we are all connected by by that that humanness that's there.
1: All right. So we've been chatting now for 35 minutes or so, and we haven't got into the NBA draft. And like in my mind, we could. Sorry, just, listeners. Well, well, we could probably just skip over the NBA draft and continue your story in, in peace building, and this would be beautiful and it would be inspiring and uplifting. But I like it's just, I don't know, mind boggling, fascinating, interesting, curious. Those are the words that are coming up for me that somebody is on this path and is burning inside to you know, it sounds like there's an alignment spiritually. There's like an emotional, a mental alignment here toward like making this world better and trying to, you know, for lack of a better word, being on a mission to like help places of conflict come together and be more peaceful. Okay, that story is completely logical. And then I'm curious, like when does this idea of evaluating, judging, looking at differences, whether it's a wingspan or a vertical or um, basketball IQ or like three-point shooting, when does this like really, you talked about looking at cards as a kid and being interested in sports. And by the way, I love polarity in human beings. And so I'm not, this isn't actually coming from a judgmental place. It's actually coming from like a curious space. Uh, And and part of it is actually, I'm curious of what's similar and what's different for you than it is for me because up until now there's similar stories and I'll get into my NBA draft interests. um it's very similar but when does actually like the draft or the business side of sports or whatever that taste uh come into play for you and become something that you want to do more of
0: well, I think, I think the word is paradoxical. And one thing that I, I at least see in myself is there's a lot of really both fascinating paradoxes and occasionally troubling paradoxes, right, in my, in my life. I found, I, I was in law school. I think it was my, maybe my first year of law school, I was dirt poor. And law school was killing me. It was killing me financially and just the amount of time that I was spending trying to keep up. I I think I'm a fairly smart guy, but I might have been a little bit in the deep end of the pool at at times with, with some of the other people that may have been a little bit more prepared for me, or maybe just smarter than me.
1: And doing a dual degree. So JD, what is it? A JD and a master's? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that was after my first year. And, and I was just trying to actually figure out how to pay the bills to be honest. And so I had a good friend that I'd went to school with at BYU Hawaii, Jason Peary, and he was working on his MBA at the time and was a much, was a super entrepreneur, an incredible incre- friend, and and someone that I've stayed deeply close with, you know, my whole life, and, and Jason just pitched one night to me, because I was trying to figure out, like, I'm gonna have to go get a part-time job at a gas station, I mean, I just didn't really know, like, how does it fit my schedule, he's like, you know, you can, you can go on the internet, you can create your own website, and And there's, there's real money there and you do it on your own time. And, you know, he sort of laid it out and I'm like, well, what would we do? And it's like, well, what do we talk about all the time? We talk about sports all the time, we're constantly talking about sports and let's do something sports related. And, and I really give the credit to him because it was, it was, it was more his idea that uh, he was actually quite conservative and he loved the Drudge Report. And if you've ever seen the Drudge Report, it's the least interesting looking website on the planet. It's just a bunch of links, right? And a bunch of hyperlinks to political stories. It's like, what if we did one of those for sports and we did it by sport and by team? And every morning you could wake up and you could see everything that's written about your team. And, and, and that would be something new and different. And, and actually, well, it doesn't necessarily feel different now in 1996, it was really different. And so we said, okay, that's great. How do we create a website? I don't know. I went to the I went to the um, uh, library and got an HTML for dummies book and like literally was hand coding, trying to create, because we didn't need a lot, right? The Drudge Report, if you looked at it, it's not the fanciest site. You just need to figure it out a little bit. And we started NBA talk and NFL talk as uh, he was handling NFL. I was mostly handling NBA. And really that's where it started. We're just curating links. And all I was trying to do to be totally honest was get some advertising revenue so I could feed my family. I mean, that's, that, that's it. And I, and it was doing something that I, I, I did love. And so I'm going to be reading sports stuff anyway. And so why not, you know, why not try to make some money out of it? And what happened next is just one of those um, serendipitous moments that I don't think we can ever, you know, totally plan for. We we don't have very many visitors to our website and time i think it was time magazine or newsweek i I, t- I can't remember off the top of my head but one of their writers it was the super bowl and they were they were listing on their their magazine their favorite sites to go to to get information about the nfl and we were on there and that day we didn't even know about it the the writer didn't tell us or anything our our servers just started crashing <laughs> and we were like what is going on and it took us a while to actually sort of figure out what was happening but it it sent a bunch of people to our website that stayed and then what happened that really transformed all of our lives was nba agents nba coaches players executives and on the nfl side as well they were coming to the site because it was just a quick way to get all the information about stuff that was either written about them or their clients or or what have you and then because Again, they didn't always have the access to the media that was writing about it. We would get these notes like, that story's BS and that's a rumor. Don't publish that, right? That's not at all what sort of happened. And we just started getting conversation with them. And we had one thing going for us that's, of course, again, something that is obvious in the internet now but wasn't back then, which was that we could change in real time. And so back then, the internet still kind of went under the daily newspaper publishing mode and where... It was updated once a day, and then you got up in the morning, and it'd be updated again for a page. We were updating five, six times a day. We started creating our own stories. We started building relationships with front offices and, and agents, and before long, within a year, we were breaking, breaking stuff right and left, and then, then our, you know, our rumor pages and you know, things like that became huge, and, and I loved the draft. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this with the draft, and I'm gonna start actually talking to NBA scouts and agents about the draft, and not just being like everybody else I think was sort of back then, which is just well, this is just what I think about the player, whatever. I'm actually gonna try to get really informed information, and that's how that's how it began. It, it was always sort of crowdsourced from those sources. It always has been ever since. I don't ever want to pretend that I am an expert in evaluating NBA talent. Uh, I, I think I'm okay at it. I think there's lots of people that are better at it than me. What I've been really good at over the years was talking to a lot of people, being careful about who I talk to, following track records over time, and then calling what I think the league is thinking. Uh, about the draft. And, and I think that's why so many people followed it and, and lis- listen to it.
1: So the website was started when you were in grad school mm-hmm. and then you, you, you end up graduating. And then is that what you pursue is like, okay, now this is a full-time gig. This isn't a side hustle anymore. Like <laughs> what? No,
0: I, I was going to walk away completely. <sighs> I had several offers to go work, teach at universities doing conflict resolution stuff. That's what I wanted to do. I was super passionate about it. I chose one, it fell through at the last second. I was deeply in debt from, from law school at the time. If you know anything about the legal world and the academic world, they have a hiring season. And so it's not like they hire 24 seven, they sort of hire graduating classes or you know at the start of academic years. And so the two things that I really wanted to do when that fell through at the last second, I had like a year runway now before I was going to be able to do something again. It was, it was devastating uh, to the point that um, I had to go back home and move into my parents' basement, a very blue collar family, their son graduating from Georgetown law school with a master's degree living at home in the basement because I was, I was essentially unemployed. And while we were making some money at, at, at what became SportsTalk.com, we were also reinvesting almost all that money into growth. Then the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, um, wiped us out as well as everybody else. And and luckily for us, ESPN.com came along and and bought us. and And I wish I could say they bought us and I drove away in a Ferrari. They they bought us essentially for uh, uh, some jobs at ESPN and. And again, my life just forever changed. And so I didn't ever think that I was going to go that route. In fact, even when I was negotiating with ESPN, I was trying to get out of it so that I could get back into this realm. But because I was so integral to the company at the time, they weren't going to do the sale without me coming over and helping lead what was going to become insider, therefore pay subscription. And when I got to ESPN, I mean, on one hand, it was a dream come true. Right. Yeah. Walking on the sports center set for the first time meeting, meeting Stuart Scott. I mean, it was, I was like blown away. I was like a kid in a candy factory. And by the way, they're going to start flying me around the games and I'm going to have like courtside passes and you know, all the stuff that I wasn't actually getting with NBA talk and sports talk. I mean, that was huge. The platform was huge, but on the other hand, maybe just a couple of months into them buying us, 9-11 happens. Mm. And uh, and when it happens, uh, this dissonance inside of me was, was massive on one hand, really grateful for my job at ESPN and everything else. On the other hand, I and mean, I've been trained, this is what I've been trained to go do. This is, this is what I've always wanted to do is go and try to help solve conflicts like this, but I'm busy running around the world covering the NBA draft. And it, it took about three, three, four years of internal turmoil back and forth with that before I finally told ESPN in 2005, I have to go back to this life. And so I left ESPN full-time in 2005, went and took a job as a professor at BYU-Hawaii, back where I I studied. I started working on peace-building project. Peace Players was one of my very first projects that that I started working on. And then it was about a year later, uh, that they came back to me and said, hey, we'd still like you to do some draft stuff. And so then I was just exclusively doing the draft. And, and the only way I can rectify the draft, you know, simply is I I'm a big believer in hope. <laughs> and I talked about this with Bill Simmons on my podcast. The draft to me represents hope. For every sports fan every year, if your team doesn't win the title, what is going to change? to help you be competitive next year. And we can project all of our hopes and dreams on these young, 18, 19, 20 year old athletes, who maybe, just maybe, if we get it right, is gonna come in and turn everything around in, in the franchise. And that that's so tantalizing to me, right? And one of the things that I loved working with all these young athletes is they also had some, everybody believed they were gonna be the next Kobe, or next Michael Jordan, first of all. and, and And on top of that, they were all the best of the best. I mean, we talk about, oh, only 15, 20 players in the draft ever sort of pan out. But of those 60 players drafted, those are the 60 best non-professional basketball players in the world, right, at any one time. And that's an incredible, amazing achievement. And to work around these high-performing people and be able to be part of their lives and over what time became a lot of, personal connections and contacts that I made with them. I love that part of the job.
1: Chad, as you're talking, I'm I'm thinking about my own experience. So when I was a senior in high school, I was taking an AP psychology class. Dr. Metz or Mrs. Metz was her name. And I just wasn't really into the psychology piece. So I was writing on a piece of paper, my order for that year's draft. Mm. And I don't know what year, well, I do know what year, if I really think about it, it's got to be 2000 one to 2002 so 2002 draft maybe I'm wrong about this but Roger Mason was like the guy that I love talk about the next like Jordan or Kobe he was a 6'5 shooting guard with three-point range and good athleticism played at UVA and I was just like a big Roger Mason guy and I remember like making my board and probably you know comparing it to what the internet says and I don't even know if I was you would probably have a better sense of that but anyway like I wasn't paying any attention to the psychology. I was obsessed with the draft. Uh, and then even as I went off to college, I used to do Microsoft Word documents on who I liked and the order. Um, you know, you know a little bit about me. Like I was fortunate to be in war rooms and see how this process went. And I'd always have like my little order, but I kind of keep it to myself. And uh, and I when I went to grad school, I had a little more time and so I created my own website and that was around the time where you could start to watch on um what's the website where you could watch all the film and it would cut um cut all the film for you automatically um the synergy started. synergy yeah. um so I got a synergy account so late night like my girlfriend at the time now my wife is asleep and I'm staying up till three in the morning watching film and creating profiles on players so I was obsessed with the draft and then
0: and she thinks you're like watching porn all night. Right? I'm weird. Like, I don't even know what It's sort of sports it. porn. Yeah, it that's was. what Synergy is. It yeah. was my
1: version for sure. Um, and for those that don't know, Synergy basically will chop up a game. And if I wanted to watch every pull-up jump shot from Roger Mason Jr., I could watch every pull-up jump shot from Roger over and over and over again, whether he made it or missed it. You get to watch amazing amount of content. And I was obsessed with it. And – now I've never really thought about like why that was, but as I'm hearing you talk, you mentioned hope and dreams. And I think my love for sports is about the unknown and we don't know what's going to happen when they start a game and, and the unknown of trying to figure out if a player would make it at the next level, that unknown and trying to really do like amazing due diligence and attention to detail and trying to figure that out and solve how that person will translate. And I almost could envision, all right, plug this person here. What is it going to look like? And I spent so much time thinking about that. And so I think I fell in love with that aspect of the unknown. It's probably what I love about sports in general is that we just don't know what's going to happen. Paper, analytics, data, rosters, all that good stuff. You still got to roll the ball out and see what happens. As I think about what we're going through now with the coronavirus, and as I think about life in general, life is unknown. Like your dad's life was cut short. Um, He didn't know that that would happen. The unknown is exciting. The unknown of going to George Mason and finding that program. There's beauty in the unknown, and there's fear and anxiety, and it's scary, but as I'm hearing you talk, I think for me, what I loved about the draft and still love about it is that unknown and we can debate it and nobody truly knows who is going to translate like Zion Williamson. Everyone can say, Oh, I knew he was going to be great. Or I knew he was going to get hurt or I knew this. It's like, Nope, none of you knew you didn't know. Stop saying, you knew cause there's unknown. And I think what we're all going through right now is this unknown of when we're going to be able to go to a beach again, or when we're going to be able to eat, Uh, at a restaurant again. And for some that's scary and for others that can be scary and exciting in in another way. And so I'm just thinking about that right now, because as I've gotten older, I've tried to continue to develop a relationship with the unknown because a lot of times the unknown holds me back and uh, that's where fear lives for myself. Um, But the unknown is like my baby being born, not knowing what gender, asking my wife now for her phone number and whether or not she'd say yes. um, Applying for a job like the unknown is also like a beautiful part of life. So I just went on this huge riff, but I'd be curious to get your perspective on how you think about it as it relates back to the draft.
0: I love that. I, again, Bill Simmons and I did a, did a podcast. And one of the things we did is we looked back, we used to have these draft debates and they're all there online so many wrongs so many wrongs (laughs) it's pretty embarrassing a lot of it's pretty embarrassing to be honest and and we'd spent a lot of time scouting the draft looking at the draft and what have you it it is one of those things every year and the teams that drafted those guys spent millions of dollars and have systems in place to get this right and, and they got it wrong too and then there's always we also talked about this guys that really surprised us like guys there ah, they'll be fine right and then they turn out to be superstars right and you know for example we were just talking about donovan mitchell and i, I thought donovan mitchell would be an okay and be a player right i did not think donovan mitchell was going to be a superstar and 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 so there's i think that is a big part of it is the unknown the unpredictability of this the the thing that everybody knows that whatever we're saying right now, it's not going to play out that way. It's never going to look like what we think it's going to look like, which is, which is part of the beauty of sports. And, and there's something else about, I, I, you know, I like two things about the unknown that you brought up when you were talking. One is that, you know on one hand, unknown means discovery, means journey. I, I'm a big believer that wherever we are right now in our life, wherever we feel stuck, there's part of us, that we haven't discovered yet that can help us get unstuck. We might not be able to see it in ourselves or in others, but, it, but it's there. And part of it is what I call, I, I just um, recently did a, a Dangerous Love podcast around this where I was just rambling in the microphone for a bit. It's called the not enough syndrome. And part of it is a, a story that we tell ourselves or a story that we often tell about others that, that were not enough. And that can be a very debilitating story to tell ourselves or to tell others, tell about other people, because it limits, it limits our growth, it limits our progress. And I know Brian, you work with a lot of high performance athletes and, and work through this, that story, if you're telling yourself that story, it destroys your ability to be high performance. Well, Chad, and it's, 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 it's interesting
1: ahead. because it can help you prepare and it can help you. I'm not good enough uh, you know, this, that, like I had Elton brand on the podcast and Elton is just like a really wise human being, like super, awesome. super awesome, super awesome human. And Elton talked about the draft that he was in, you know, with Rip Hamilton and some of those other guys. And he's like, I would be watching those guys all the time and be like, if they're doing X, I'm doing Y and I'm not enough. And, and so I think athletes, there is a uh, obsessiveness that comes with it. That's not necessarily healthy um from a human standpoint but can be helpful when it comes to maximizing potential and they need to have that ability to say i'm not enough in preparation and then when they get between the lines if they're thinking that they're not enough they're going to get their lunch money taken from them right. because the guy across from them believes they're the greatest basketball player to ever show up in the world and so i, I think um for a lot of us it's it, i love that you said it's a story in our head because i think there's a There's value in in like, hey, I'm not there yet. I need to get better, but not um, letting that bleed into everything that we do in this world, and realizing that who we are as a human being can be good enough, but our craft still needs to get better. And being able to separate those and and realize that you know we can take criticism while still believing in ourselves. Like we can realize that oh, I've got room to grow while still being in love with myself. My daughter says it best. My three year old. She's like, who do you love? I love my mommy, I love my daddy. I love my brother. I love myself, right? Like um, like the ability to make sure that you still love yourself while realizing that you are enough and I've got room to grow. that's that's where I start to go.
0: Yeah, and I love that because it's what you do with that voice in your head, right? The voice can be can drive you to say, hey, there's changes I need to make in my life that will make me a better athlete, better human being, better father, better better spouse, whatever or it can tell me that it's impossible, right? And so give up. And, and the first voice that's, that's driving me to become better, to me is the whole key to transforming everything in our life, including conflict. The other voice is the, is the voice that I think makes conflict become so destructive. And what happens is it poisons us, not just internally, but externally as well. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of years about when you get wrong in the draft is this obsession that you can have with looking at a player and only pointing out what they don't do and saying, okay, because of that, they're not enough. Right. And there is a number of scouts out there that that's how they, they scout the draft. They look for weaknesses and flaws and then they make the argument in the room. They can't do this. They can't do that. And of course then you don't draft that player. Right. And the best scouts that I've seen over the years are able to see that because you have to see it and you have to see that part clearly, but also be able to see this is what they could become. If we put the, give the right coaching, we put them in the right setting. We do this, this, and this, and they do this, this, and this, this is what they could become. And that to me is, is not just a metaphor for the draft. It's a metaphor For life and and thinking about conflict and being able to see a person and not just pigeonhole them based off of what their current behavior is right now or the mistakes that they've made or that I've made uh, in the past, but being able to reach deeper and see the potential that my experience has been, and I've worked in a lot of conflicts throughout the world in a lot of different settings, people can change, number one and to however poorly you are behaving or acting in the moment that you're in conflict isn't all of who you are and doesn't foretell that you can't do things differently and if i create that space it can, becomes an invitational space to invite other people into it to change but it has to be a safe space for them to to jump into and and too often what happens in our own lives and our own conflicts is we make it a very unsafe space for people. When we constantly give them the message they're not enough, their ability to try something different or to step out of their comfort zone, it, it's too scary, right? And fear is the thing that ultimately paralyzes paralyzes us. And that's the tagline and or the the subtitle of my book is transforming fear and conflict because it's actually fear of conflict and fear of the people in conflict that limits our growth and limits our
1: relationships. Well, I want to go into that and I want to go into conflict resolution or, or, or conflict discussion. A couple of things that I'm just going to own, uh, you know, you talked about Donovan Mitchell. For me, the guy was Paul George where I watched Paul George and scouted him a ton and I'm watching him just turn the ball over, be loose with it, be lazy, like all this stuff. And I remember there's this random person I met who was also obsessed with the NBA draft. And he's like, my guy this year is Paul George. That's my guy. And I'm like, what are you watching? I'm like, are you watching? And he's like, he's six, nine, he can handle, he's got three point range and man, that guy was completely right. And I was just so wrong. And so anybody who's ever uh, put pen to paper when it comes to who they like in any draft in any sport, I encourage you to do it. If you want to have a voice in the room, go, go do that. And then talk to me in five years, because you're, you're going to get it wrong. And um, you know, the idea of confrontation and the idea of conflict Um, I once had a really smart general manager in the NBA tell me that we want the best idea in the room to win. And we want to have a culture of confrontation. We want to be willing to confront each other. And um, it doesn't matter your title. We want to have those discussions and those debates uh, and the best idea in the room wins. I'm curious for you as you're working with cultures and people that are in conflict how do you think about confrontation? What does it look like in a productive manner? Um, what have you learned about confrontation and um, how to do it in a way that is effective and productive?
0: Yeah, I don't love the word confrontation. And I've worked with a lot of organizations that that's been their culture and their mantra and and with a positive end, right? Like we let this all fight out and the best idea ultimately will, will rise to the top out of it. It doesn't matter who it comes from go to war with each other and, and find it. But the human psychology behind that, I think, is actually really challenging, right? Because what happens when I'm in, in a confrontational space is that I see other people's ideas as threats to my own and threats to the way that, that I might be perceived or viewed in the world, right? And so what, what happens in those debates is that I keep refining refining my idea to beat your idea. And I will refine it or change it in whatever way I think is going to help beat your idea, even if sometimes it doesn't become a good idea. The, the culture that I think is the, is the culture that we should be thinking about and building is similar, but I, I call it the culture of collaboration as opposed to confrontation. Because collaboration is continuing to advocate for your ideas, your needs, your wants, your desires, what you think is best. But it also requires you listening carefully to what other people are talking about. It requires you to be open to that their needs, wants, and desires matter just as much as my own, and that we have to be creative and work hard to find a way to come up with solutions to problems that encompass all of those ideas. So for example, one thing that I see throughout the NBA, for example, is rifts between front offices and coaching staffs. Right. The coaching staff constantly feeling a particular pressure to win every single game, you know, every night and a front office that takes a much longer view about what it means to build a, a successful uh, franchise. Right. And, and there's not riffs in every front office, by the way, but but there, there isn't a number of ones. Right. And so what happens is this culture of confrontation where coaches and general managers sort of go at it. I'm fighting over what they see as basically sort of limited resources, right? Like who's going to be on my team? Who are the players are going to be on my team? And I rarely see it end with, well, the best idea won. I really see egos get bruised, get hurt. People feel like they can't communicate anymore. Silos begin built. Allies begin circling around those. Leaks start happening to the media, either throwing the coach under the bus or throwing the front office under the bus, throwing players under the bus. And, and I've worked with organizations, including NBA organizations that when they're collaborating, they are deeply invested in both of those things. so the coach has to not only be deeply invested in winning basketball games, which is part of what the coach does, but the long-term health of the franchise and the long-term development of the players on the team, not just winning on a certain uh, night that they have a great coach. They have to be invested in those things. The front office also has to be invested in the mental health of the players and coaches that are on that, uh, that are on their team and recognize that they come out every night and they prepare every night to win basketball games and want to be put in the best position possible to actually win. That is the game. And when you have front offices and coaches that have that level of trust and communication and that commitment That we're going to work together to solve this problem together. It's a problem that we own together and that we'll work together. I think that's where magic happens. I think that's where creativity takes off. And I think that that's where you've seen really healthy franchises thrive. When When it goes the other way, the chances that I'm going to begin to only see the other person as an object and and only think about how do i win this conflict rise and and i think you don't need to look any further than our political polarization that's happened in the united states today the only way the united states works is for republicans and democrats to work together the way our system is set up to get great legislation we have to work together on things but things have become so polarized things have become so about winning and winning as much as possible that even good ideas are left on the cutting room floor because they didn't come from us. Or it might give this sense that, oh, a Democrat or a Republican had a good idea or they were smart. Or, or it might signal to our base that we're actually working with the enemy after every campaign ad that I, I deliver is that we're fighting the enemy. And if we don't develop this culture of collaboration, we don't engender this sort of creativity that we need to solve the most complex problems that face us in the world, in our relationships, in our organizations, uh, and, and in the world. And this is a big part of, of a lifetime of being a conflict mediator that, that, that I've come through. That That is the only approach that ultimately le- leads to sustainable solutions um, in, in relationships.
1: I'm glad you, you ended there with sustainability because uh, we we both have spent time with two negotiation experts, uh, Ron Shapiro and Bob Bordone. Uh, both have been on the podcast and both have spent time in Israel with us. Um, and Bob, you know, taught at Harvard Law School in negotiation. And Ron was a sports agent for a number of years and uh, teaches negotiation to all kinds of different people. They both talk about zero-sum games being a short-term solution and not a long-term sustainability model. And I think you're hitting on that. As I'm hearing you talk, I know uh, we've both been fortunate to be around R.C. Buford, the general manager of the San Antonio Spurs, who just being around him is one of the best leaders and people that I've been fortunate to just spend time with in any walk of life. Um, And then I know you have also spent some time with Steve Kerr, who is someone who I have not spent time with, but from the outside looking in both of those organizations in the last 20 and the Spurs in the case of, I guess, almost 30 years. um, When I think of sustainability, you definitely think of the Spurs. And then when you think of culture, I think of the Warriors. um, And I think about those organizations also in the sense of having alignment. And uh, you, you see Golden State with Stephen Curry Uh, Steve Kerr and Bob Myers and the alignment that seems to be there from the general manager, head coach, and star player. Same thing with the Spurs for years with Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich, and and RC Buford. Um, And I just see them as sustainable. And people will say the Warriors, well, they brought in Duran and all this other stuff, but people forget like the Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry team, like, you know, they birthed that organization and then, we can talk about NBA draft luck all we want, and certainly that goes into success in sports. But if you study Steve Kerr and you learn about R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich and Myers and you listen to them talk, I've been blown away by their culture and, and how much they do care about people and uh, care about something bigger than just a basketball game. And so, getting to know those leaders and those organizations. I'd love to hear how your concepts and frameworks and, you know, you mentioned this book in this podcast, Dangerous Love, like how do you see love playing in those organizations? How do you see the ability to have difficult conversations and handle conflict playing at a sports organizational level, especially at the professional level?
0: You know, love is a weird word to use around sports. And, and there was a while where my publisher was like, can we use a different word, right? Like this, everybody's going to think this is about romantic love or, you know, something like that. And, and it's really not. When, when I say the term love, I'm not talking about romantic love or the sort of love that means like, right? Like we love chocolate or we love pizza or we, you know, we love a friend. Those sorts of loves are great, but they're only sustainable in many cases. If that's the only sort of love that you feel if things are going your way i call it easy love right and what happens with easy love when conflict comes is that easy love makes a run for it and so even in romantic love man if i feel a lot of passion or attraction towards a person but then i run into conflict with that person i'm done right that passion goes away pretty quickly and it falls apart so what makes for sustainable relationships i i don't think it's actually very different if you're talking about a couple as you're talking about an organization it's that it's not that i i in in love with the person, or that I even have to like the person, but that I see their needs and wants and desires so clearly that they matter to me as much as my own. And you'll hear this term family a lot in some of these organizations. And I think a lot about my family. I don't really like everybody in my family, you know, to be honest, not at least the same. From a standpoint of do we get along or do we have the same viewpoints or worldviews or ways seeing the world? It's all sort of different But I fiercely love my family, even sometimes when we're very, very different in our outlooks on life or what we want. And and the thing that matters is because I'm so connected to them, I can see that someone else in my family's desires, needs, and wants are contextually as legitimate to them as mine are to me. And therefore, if I'm going to be in relationship with them, I have to honor that while continuing to honor mine. And, and dangerous love is, that feels dangerous, right? When someone has a different viewpoint than we do, is looking at the world differently, has different needs or wants or desires than my own, to be vulnerable enough, right? To open myself up to that and to be vulnerable enough, because this is what it, the challenge for some other people, to open up what I need and what I want and what's important to me to tell another person and and to do that simultaneously at the same time for many, many people is the scariest thing that you can actually ask them to do. It's actually scarier than public speaking or being on a podcast or whatever it is, right? To say, I'm going to be both emotionally available to you. I'm going to tell you and talk about my needs, wants and desires. And at the same time, I am going to be open to yours. Even when they're different, even when they're challenging, or perhaps might even seem, at least on the surface, to be threatening to my own, I have to be alive to that. And what I see an organization like the Spurs, for example, do is that they get that that alignment that way. Greg Popovich matters. Our owner matters. R.C. Buford matters. What our scouts are doing, they matter. What our players need and want, they matter. And, and that is the alignment that exists across the entire organization. And there's a commitment within that organization that we're going to be fierce truth tellers. We're going to talk and we have the space to be able to talk about what we need and want. But we're also going to be aligned with trying to find out how to make that work for others. And I think what was so frustrating to the Spurs with the Kawhi Leonard thing that happened a, a few years ago was they couldn't get Kawhi Leonard to talk. They couldn't get him to sit down and actually open up. I think there was a deep commitment within the Spurs organization to find a way to make Kawhi Leonard happy, to be creative about it. And for whatever reasons and ways that Kawhi Leonard hasn't ever really opened up, and I'm a huge Kawhi Leonard fan, by the way. For So there's all sorts of reasons that that may have happened. He wasn't able to have that conversation with them. And eventually it, it ended in a trade. And unfortunately, in our relationships, sometimes we're afraid to have those conversations and it ends up in a breakup or divorce, or what have you. But when people have those conversations, I think that they're incredibly able to solve even really complex problems that otherwise seem unsolvable.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the Kauai situation, because I think even the best of organizations, the best leaders make mistakes as well. Um, And there's all kinds of reasons why things don't work out. We're all human, and we're all capable of not building relationships or lack of communication and it's a, it's more than a two-way street with a team it's multiple multiple streets that are that are going on there so i just think things are confusing and too often we just put people up on a pedestal and just assume that they're always going to do the right thing and people make mistakes and rifts happen and people break up and like divorce isn't always a bad thing. Divorce is often what's best for, for both parties. And often we just think that it should always stay the same. And the reality is that, I mean, certainly for Kawhi, I mean, he he goes to Toronto and wins a championship and then decides to go wherever the heck he wants to go and go to the Clippers. So for Kawhi, it might've been what was in his best interest. And you can certainly make an argument from the result standpoint. Um, But there there's, to me, there's an overarching theme of what we've talked about, which is communication, building relationships, vulnerability, trust, um, effort, working hard. Um, these are all frameworks for high performance as well. And I just, I just want to note that because I think um, it, it is, uh, it does go across different industries and different people. And the last thing I'll say is around love. So people think Bill Belichick's this cold. You know, just transactional guy, and their phrase is do your job, right? Like that's their mantra. But you listen to those players mic'd up at the end of a Super Bowl. And all they're talking about is how they love each other. And they're saying it with the heart and the passion that you talk about. And I just think there's a lot of different ways to eat a Reese's. So Pete Carroll is going to run up and down the sideline and talk about developing the best humans they can. And he's going to do it with an energy of a 25-year-old, even though I don't know how old he is now, probably 70. Um, But he's going to talk about transformational leadership and our job is to be in service. And he's in the NFL. And then you've got Bill Belichick, who's going to be very stoic and very – careful with his word choice. But at the end of the day, they both talk about love. And um, so I love that you brought up the word love. I work with a college basketball coach who uses that word all the time and is intentional with that word. And it's important. And And the last thing I'll say is for men, especially, these words, vulnerability, you know, communication, uh, love, these are words that for years, we were told maybe to stay away from, and I think true strength comes from embodying and embracing those words. And actually, I think we're seeing a lot of our professional athletes embody them in a way that's really exciting about where the future of sports is going. And um, so I just get I get a little excited and energized when I hear the word love because I think it, it it goes back to the oneness that you talked about in your religion and um, oneness and seeing people. That to me, oneness is 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 love and it's not reserved to hippies. Um, it's, it's a human experience. And I think the best cultures and organizations embody that in and outside of sports. So um, that's just my little riff there to, to go with what you're talking about.
0: And you know, there's i uh, I'll tell you a story because there's, there can be really big pushback to this for, for the reasons that that you pointed out. I was in Colorado Springs at the U S Olympic uh, training facility doing a workshop and we were talking about this concept with these very high performance athletes, but they were a little bit different than NBA athletes because most of their sports were quote unquote sort of individual sports. And there's some ways that Olympic sports or team individual sports are also team sports as well. But if you asked almost all of these athletes, if the U S won the gold medal or if you won the gold medal, which, which of those would be preferable? Let's be honest. They're like I, me, winning the gold medal would be, would be the bigger, the bigger of those achievements. Right. And we're talking about this concept of inward mindset versus outward mindset. It's a concept from the Arbinger Institute, if you've read their book, The Outward Leadership or Outward Mindset, sorry, or or Leadership and Self-Deception. They talk a lot about this. It's been really influential for me. And inward mindset is that I see the entire world through the lens of how it impacts me. I see every human being through the lens of how do they impact me? I like people who have positive impacts on me. I don't like people who have negative impact on me, but everything is through that lens. An outward mindset is that I see people as having equal needs, wants, and desires as myself. And it's not that they're more important than me, but they, they exist on that level. And we're going through this concept very early on in the workshop. And, and one of the athletes raises his hand and he says, uh, yeah, so what you're saying is, I think, is that the inward mindset is good and the outward mindset is bad? Now, I've, been, I've done tons of these workshops. I've, I'm not sure that I've ever had anybody that got done with that who had actually completely flipped them and said the other. And I, I said, okay, that's not exactly what I was saying, but talk to me more about that. And he talks, and he, and he started to speak to me about, look, I've been taught my whole life that all ultimately my performance depends on me, and that I'm supposed to cut out all distractions around around my life. And so anybody that's a distraction in any sort of way around me, anything that can keep me from winning that gold medal, they're out of my life. And so I get it. Outward mindset leads to me not getting a gold medal. Inward mindset, that deep focus just on myself is what is what's going to get me there. And and then uh, nodding heads all around and people, yeah, and I'm like, okay, I'm in trouble, man, because I'm going the opposite direction, you know, with this workshop. I actually have to call a break because while I've had resistance to it before, I don't think I've ever had like uniform resistance in the room. And actually, it's what they've been told their whole life, inward, inward, inward. And as I'm, as I'm walking around, I, I actually, it comes to me what I need to say. I'd actually been working and this is, this is where my strange worlds collide, right? I've been working just a few weeks before with this indigenous group of Maori people, the indigenous people of, of, of New Zealand. And they, they had taught me a concept that I thought was really interesting. I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna bridge these weird Chad Ford worlds you know, together. And I walked back in and I, and I asked them this question, okay, I think that's really, I think I understand where you're coming from. I just have a few questions for you. And I just wanna ask you questions. My first question is, how did you fall in love with your sport? Many of you are in fairly obscure sports. We're not talking about basketball or football here, right? You're, you're into diving or, you know, things like that. Where, where did you fall in love with that? And each, and each person that raised their hand and spoke tells a story about a family member or a friend or someone who really got them in, involved. And I'm like, okay, so you learned it from other people, got it. Um, how did you eventually become good at your sport? Well, I got a coach. Okay, and did you know it all already or did you have to be trained? Oh, no, no, we had to be trained. Was your coach helpful? Many of them didn't love their coaches, but all of them could say, Look, my coach helped me get to this space. And I'm like, And how did you get to those practices every day? Oh, you know, my parents drove me around. And who paid for those practices? Did you pay for them or somebody else? Oh, yeah, my parents did. Okay, I'm just curious. And what about when you were training? I know it's an individual sport, but did you train with other peers or other kids your age or whatever? And the answer always was, Yeah. I trained with other kids my age, and I'm like, okay, was that helpful? Would you have enjoyed the sport as much as if it was just you and your coach? No, that they're the only people that kept me sane. They're the only people that understood what I was really going through in life. And I'm like, okay, and as you got better in some of these sports, did your family like pick up and move and go to some sort of place where there's a training facility where you could train full-time? Absolutely. Talked about moms and dads quitting jobs, packing up the entire family, you know, moving away, you know, all of this different stuff. Okay, have you ever had a bad performance before? In other words, you you were at a meet, swim meet, or whatever, you didn't perform the way you wanted. Everybody's hand goes up. Okay, great. And was was it ever the case that your coach or your teammates pulled you aside afterwards and helped you feel better and helped give you encouragement and helped you work through that and talk through that? Yeah, was that helpful to you? Great. So let me get this right. Let me get this straight. Every time you walk into the pool, it's just you and you alone, right? So that's what you're telling me, right? It has nothing to do with anything else around you. And then there's silence in the room for a minute. See, it seems to me to be the opposite. Every time that you walk into a court or walk onto a, a, a swimming pool deck or a diving deck or whatever it is, you bring all, all of those relationships with you, right? They're all there with you. And if they're positive, right? If, if, if we're at harmony with those, with those relationships, they can be huge motivational factors in us that make us who we are. And if they're dysfunctional or broken, I ask them, how many of you had a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend before? And did that affect your, your match the next day? And then all of them raise their hand. Yeah, it messed me up. That's why I, I block all those people out of my life, right? And I'm like, well, what if, what if instead of blocking them out of our life, we just learn how to, how to connect to them in a better way uh, going forward? Because one way or the other, we're a person amongst people. That's that's what we are in our life. There is no I. There is I in connection to other people, and the connection can be positive or it can be negative. But there there is no no I. And and at some point, all of us have to learn and understand that, that that the people around us impact us one way or the other. We can't sequester ourselves off from that. It always finds a way. And this is important in COVID nineteen right now, right? Where are we're, we're back in tight spaces with our relationships. Some which are good and positive and are leading to like a really great sort of moment that I guess spend all the time with this person. Some that are incredibly strained, and that might actually end up in breaking up or divorce or or what what have you at the end. And it reminded me of these Maoris because they have this this um, this phrase that they like to use um, all the time in Maori, and I, I thought it was really, really, really powerful. And and I wanna I wanna share it with you. Um, it goes it goes it goes like it goes like this: um, What is the most important thing in the world? Hey Tongata, hey Tongata, hey Tongata. It is people. It is people. It is people. And if you go into a traditional Maori um, marae uh, and you look at the carvings, they have carvings of their ancestors, and they're all standing on the, sold- on, on the shoulders of each other. And the reason that they're there and all around them is to remind them that they drink from wells they didn't dig, right? They eat from crops that they didn't plant, that our ancestors to them, are they stand on the shoulders of all of those people who make us who we are. And when we have that outward mindset to sort of recognize that all of our relationships actually make us who we are, including being a high-performance athlete, it actually, opens us up to being more humble, to learning, to growing, to developing in ways that it's closed when I think it's all about me and it's only about me. By the end of that workshop, it was incredible the way these athletes were interacting with their coaches, the way that they were talking about things, the way they were able to break through um, different challenges at the end. And, and, you know, that lesson is important as it was to, I'm a big fan of the Olympics, and I really want our team to win the gold and, and hope, hope that it, Let's postpone, but hope that it would help in some ways. How much more in in an organization like with Peace Players, where Israelis and Palestinians have to actually learn, it can't just be all about you. There cannot be a world where there's only Israelis. The Israelis will always be in relationship with all of the other people around them. There cannot be a world where there's only Palestinians and where the Israelis go away. The only way that you're ever going to find peace is the move from inward to outward mindset and try to understand how do I see the other person's needs, wants and desires so powerfully that I'm as invested in meeting those as I am invested in meeting mine. And we've seen this over, and one of the reasons we love going to the Middle East is to see these young people make that turn in the way that they see each other, in ways that leads to deep, powerful friendships and connections and teamwork and collaboration and, and dare I say it, love that just blows you away in one of the toughest and most intense contexts in the world.
1: So I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap. We could chat all day and we will in the future. Um, maybe on a obscure basketball court somewhere in the world. Um, But we will have a little bouncing ball in the background, so it probably won't be as good for audio quality. Um, When we first started recording, before we started recording, Chad had a fire alarm that was going off in his, uh, he's recording from his office. And so I'm glad that that settled down and we were able to have a, a deep and meaningful conversation. And you said something earlier about being complicated. And I always tell people, well... I don't think I've ever said it on this podcast, but I say this to people that are close to me, which is you'll find me on uh, a dance floor at a wedding and or in the corner having a deep conversation with somebody. And those are two things that I love uh, equally. So I love having deep conversations and I love um, getting on the dance floor and letting loose a little bit. So I love paradox. And to me, a lot of our conversation today was around that. Tell people where they can learn about dangerous love the book, uh, the podcast, why that is the title of the book, um, what it's about, and where people can learn more about what you're up to.
0: Yeah, so you can go to our website, dangerouslovebook dot com, and you'll find the podcast there as well. And there's a blog, and you can find a you can find it everywhere on Amazon or whatever. It comes out in June. It'll be an audio book, ebook, uh, what what have you. And uh, we're doing a lot with it on social media as well. You can go to Instagram and and, at Dangerous Love Book. Um, We have a Loving Dangerously community on Facebook that's got uh, hundreds of people that are engaging. They're asking questions about conflicts or problems that they have as well. The podcast is breaking down what does this look like in marriage and what does this look like raising kids and what does this look like when you feel like you're not enough and bringing on experts and uh, trying to further the conversation even before the book comes out, uh, it was named actually after what what I thought was a a quote from Martin Luther King that didn't quite a, quite pan out to be a quote. Uh, his book was Strength to Love. I talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about how Wallace Warfield had had slid that book off. The, to me, the most influential book that that I've ever read, and King in. The midst of the civil rights movement, most of these sermons were delivered uh, that that are in the book were delivered towards an African American congregation who were being systematically mistreated by a white population, and his message to them was that we have to love our enemies, that we that we get through this not by um, using fire for fire, but drowning fire in the water uh, of love. And that when we see them perfectly for all of their weaknesses, but also for all of their strengths, it is so powerfully invitational for them to see us that we will achieve a double victory, right? Not only will we eradicate racism and systematic racism in the United States, But we'll eradicate it from their hearts and when it's eradicated from their hearts there is a victory that they will achieve uh, because hatred anger racism discrimination are cancers upon our soul and so we must not just care about ourselves we must care about our enemy and that became a mantra for me throughout my whole life whenever i'm in conflict with somebody instead of seeing them as an enemy How do I see where they're coming from, why they're feeling the way that they're feeling, and how do I deliver a victory that not only gets me what I want, but also delivers it for them as well? That's dangerous. It doesn't always work. It means that I have to be vulnerable in ways that I'm not comfortable being vulnerable. It means that I have to put myself out there. It isn't easy. It's harder than a lot of other approaches, but I've found throughout my life it's the only way to really bring the sort of deep sustainable change that we want in our homes or in our organizations or in the world. And, and so the, this book, it's been really interesting. You talk about the paradox, Brian. <laughs> you know, of one day I'm doing a draft podcast, the next day I'm doing this. And, and we've actually seen in ways that maybe have been slightly surprising to me, not a very big crossover, uh, from, the, from everybody that's followed me in the NBA that have had interest in them. And, and maybe I, and I think our marketing team saw that more than I did. And here's why I'm surprised. And here's my pitch for, if you've only listened to me in the NBA draft for why you should read this book. If you have a family, if you are a boss or work with a boss in the organization, if you live in a community and in any of those areas in your life, you're experiencing conflict right now and you don't know what to do, this book is for you. It will give you the tools that you need to think through and transform your conflict. And as valuable and as much as I love talking about the draft every day, this will have a deeper impact on you and all the people that you care about in your life much more than knowing who should go number one in the 2020 draft.
1: It's beautiful and, and I, I think I started this by saying how geeked out I was to get to chat about the NBA draft with you and where I found our conversations most enlightening is around your expertise, your wisdom and your passion around this subject. So I certainly encourage people to get the book. I will, when it comes out in June, uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentional com. Chad, it's been such a joy to get to know you, to learn from you. And uh, once again, I just look forward to continue to learn from you in the future. And thanks for putting out this work. I think it's, we're all in conflict. We're in conflict with ourselves. We're in conflict with our neighbors. We're in conflict, you know, when I drive the car and someone cuts me off. I mean, it's, it's every day. And to your point, even in isolation, there are conflicts that we're all dealing with. And some are dealing with real at home conflicts and some real serious stuff. So um, as I said, I'm excited to unpack your book and, and learn from you and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's important work. So thank you for being you and thanks for the work that you're doing.
0: Thanks for having me on your pod, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What is the most important thing in the world? Hey Tonga. Hey Tonga. Hey Tonga. It is people. It is people. It is people. And if you go into a traditional Maori um Marai, Uh, and you look at the carvings, they have carvings of their ancestors and they're all standing on on, on the shoulders of each other. And the reason that they're there and all around them is to remind them that they drink from wells they didn't dig, right? They eat from crops that they didn't plant. That our ancestors to them, are they stand on the shoulders of all of those people who make us who we are. And when we have that outward mindset to sort of recognize That all of our relationships actually make us who we are, including being a high-performance athlete. It actually opens us up to being more humble, to learning, to growing, to developing in ways that it's closed when I think it's all about me and it's only about me.